it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. From the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice, Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for being here, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. Exciting Thursday scheduled for you. J.D. Vance, the man who's got the Republican nomination uh, in Ohio to be the next senator, replace Rob Portman, will be with us in 10 minutes. Carly Shimkus at the bottom of the hour. Lieutenant General Mike Lennington, CEO of Wounded Warrior Project. Today is the Soldier Ride program launch. Uh, he'll be in our studio. We'll talk about that. And, of course, one year, almost uh, you know, within a week or two, of uh, the horrible exit from Afghanistan the beginning of the end of President Obama as a trustworthy figure in America. Uh, excuse me, not President Obama, President Biden. It's a different conversation. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. Every time we talk about amnesty on the record, more migrants come. They, they want to be a part of that giveaway program. The president of Mexico knew exactly what he was doing. It's going to cause more people to cross the border. Unbelievable, right? Tom Homan, broken border, a gateway for criminals and illegals. They're pouring over into our country. The numbers are surging in a time when traditionally it's too hot to travel. And what the Mexican president just said to make it worse. Number two. We've laid out for, for the leadership of Iran what we're willing to accept in order to get back in the JCPOA. We're waiting for the response, but we are not going to wait forever. Yeah, it seems like you are, because you've been trying for 18 straight months. Day two in Israel for President Biden and the pomp and circumstances and flattery is overwhelmed by the administration's farcical folly of trying to get an arch enemy like Iran into a terrible nuke deal and their comical quest to suddenly end handshaking for COVID reasons. But we all know what that is really about. Number one. This inflation has its roots in the pandemic. Our monetary system supported the economy so we could get through the pandemic. And now we have Russia's uh, in, uh, war against Ukraine. Add these together, we have an, the, the unacceptably high levels of inflation. Yeah, add it together, it's excuse after excuse after excuse. Devastating. That's how all the must view. Uh, that's why all of you must view the 9.1 percent inflation rate and all efforts at spin and deception from the Biden administration are in play. And I'm talking about 9.1 percent that caught them by surprise. 8.6 is something we probably never experienced in our adult life. 9.1 was supposed to be 8.8. 9.1 took them by surprise. Meanwhile, the bulk of the administration is overseas. But don't worry, the vice president's here to handle it. First, all you should know that on average, it's costing us an extra $3,000 a year, about another, uh, the average family, $500 a month if it continues on this way, from gas to bread to eggs to everything that you do to cars you can't buy because the chips aren't in. And an employment problem, we're on the surface, it looks great, 3.6 or 3.4%. But we have so many open jobs, some stores actually have to close. First off, when it comes to credibility, here's why this administration, between foreign policy, Afghanistan, we don't think for a second that the Taliban will take over. They took over in weeks. 
to now inflation. Remember when, asked about the rise in inflation, the administration said this, every voice you hear is a Democratic know-it-all. Cut 16. Our economists have conveyed that uh, they feel that the impact uh, of our proposals will be transitory. All of the economists uh, that the president has been relying on suggest that there is a transitory nature nature to the inflation uh, problem. Economists call all these things transitory effects. This inflation uh, that we're experiencing is transitory. It is not going to be here long. We've had several months of high inflation that... um, most economists, including me, believe will be transitory. We don't expect that those uh, that, that upward pressure will produce uh, substantially higher prices or that the effects will be persistent. We expect that they'll be transitory or temporary. Right. All wrong. The only person to admit she was wrong is Janet Yellen. She was wrong. Larry Summers was right. So many other Democratic officials were right. A lot go right back to the so-called rescue plan that we did not need of $1.9 trillion. The president used his 82 million votes in what he said was a mandate to jam that down our throats. And now we're all paying for it. For example, eggs up 33% year to date. Butter up 21%. Uh, chicken parts, 20%. Canned vegetables, 14%. You go shopping, all of a sudden... The groceries are double. Now, I got a great job now, and I I feel very fortunate every day. But my whole life, I was paycheck to paycheck, including the house I grew up in. This is when this happened. This this is very real to me. It ripples through a household. No one even asks who you voted for. They'll ask when the midterms happen who you're going to vote for. And they'll ask when it comes to vote for a president who not to vote for. And it so far is anybody who has that Democrat near their name. And I'll tell you, Biden's policies, have it made the economy worse, better, or in between? When asked in a Pew poll, worse, 56% blame the administration. Not much, 32%. Better, 11%. So that's why it's serious. You want to hear from the average Americans? Let's listen. In Washington, D.C., Fox News Digital took out their cameras. Cut 17. Gas is going up, going up, but uh, uh, people's paycheck ain't going up. The more, the more you get on your paycheck, the more you got to spend in the grocery store, gas station, wherever. But, but Joe Biden needs to do more. I'm not vegan yet. I'm working on that. But I am a vegetarian now because of the price of meat. Can no longer afford it. I have to limit my groceries a little now, so I can't really get what I want all the time, I guess. The bread went up. Like, you know, at one time you can get a good loaf of bread for like a dollar and fifty. Nowadays you're paying like four bucks, five, milk. Went up, you know what I mean? It's very expensive to shop nowadays. I love seafood, but I, I, I just can't afford it. So I do my fillets and call it quits and suck my thumb and pretend. And there's times when, you, when you're in the middle of a war, war on terror, and things happen, and New York gets devastated, you get flooded, and you say, well, that's natural disasters. And, you know, after the pandemic, there was going to be some problems. And there was going to be maybe a little inflation, but we overdid it. We spent like there was going to be no ramifications. And as Brian Brenberg brought up, an economist professor over at King's College, he said the fact that it went up so much more than the administration projected and has been gone on longer than they predicted, it shows it's out of control, which is scary. I don't care who you voted for. 
Real quick, I don't want to take too much time from J.D. Vance. I do want to point out that the president's in day two of a four-day trip over to the Middle East. He'll meet with a number of uh, Middle East countries, most of all Saudi Arabia next, in Israel now. And Israel is incensed, but they're doing it politely because we're so indispensable to them about the fact that we are determined to get back in the 2015 Iranian deal that's about to expire anyway. That was the question the president got in a rare press conference today. Here's what he said. The question was essentially, how long will you wait for Iran to get back into this deal? Cut three. We've laid out for the people, for for, for the leadership of Iran, what we're willing to accept in order to get back in the JCPOA. We're waiting for the response, but we are not going to wait forever. That means he is. I don't understand it. Nobody wants it. You could have done something dramatic, Mr. President. You could have indicated to Saudi Arabia that if you, for example, agree to pump more oil, even though it's horrific in my mind because we should be doing it ourselves, we will go ahead and walk away from the Iranian deal and go back to isolation, and then we want you in return to recognize Israel. Now they already agreed to have the first flight directly from the Israeli capital to the capital of Saudi Arabia, and the president will be on one of those flights. All right, this is the Brian Kilmeade Show. We're excited that J.D. Vance is going to be with us next. Carly Shimkus at the bottom of the hour to expand on these breaking news stories, as well as the president's trip overseas. And then General Michael Linnington, an important wounded warrior project. Uh, They are still continuing to help those who served, especially in Afghanistan, one year to the day until we left in embarrassment. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Expanding your knowledge base. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. Hey, folks, it's your man, Keyshawn Johnson, here to talk about Angie, formerly known as Angie's List, your go-to home services, marketplace for getting all your jobs done well. Now you might be wondering, what exactly is Angie? Well, let me tell you. It's the nation's largest home services marketplace, connecting over 150 million homeowners with skilled professionals to tackle any project, big or small. As a homeowner myself, I always have things I want to work on for my house, whether it's general home renovations or fun projects like putting in a pool. With over 200,000 pros in their network, Angie makes it a breeze to research, compare, and hire pros, ensuring every job is done well. Whether you're fixing a leaky faucet or planning a full kitchen renovation, Angie's got your back. And get this, folks. Angie's pros aren't just any old contractors. They're your neighbors, often running small businesses right in your community. Plus, they've been rated and reviewed by others in your area. So you know you're getting quality service. So why stress over home projects when you can turn to Angie? From finding the best price to scheduling a pro at your convenience, Angie's got you covered every step of the way. So get started today at Angie.com. That's Angie.com or download the app today to get started on getting all your jobs done. That's Angie, your trusted ally in home services. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my (laughs) name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. 
a talk show that's real. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Can J.D. Vance really beat Tim Ryan? I, I, J.D. Vance is a, is a novice candidate. Uh, I don't think he's got the moves. We'll see. You had Matt Dolan in Ohio. They picked this hypocrite, uh, J.D. Vance, who's acting like a freak, talking about stolen elections in Ohio. They didn't pick the rational, reasonable candidates. They picked insurrectionists, wackos, freaks, and conspiracy theorists. Uh, That is just some of the idiocy that goes on on other channels about a legitimate Republican who won the nomination in a very tough field, in a very tough race. There's just such blatant disrespect uh, from a guy who's a self-made success story best uh, uh, best exemplified by the movie he wrote, the book he wrote, and the movie uh, that was portrayed of that. Uh, J.D. Vance joins us now, the Ohio Senate candidate representing the Republican ticket, wants to replace Senator Portman, taking on uh, Tim Ryan. J.D., how do you handle that type of personal critiques? They're not talking about yeah. – they're not talking about your bully. They're talking about you. Yeah, you know, I've gotten used to it, Brian. I think those people uh, are all – uh, completely disconnected from reality. And so you just have to ignore it and accept that the price of, of doing public service in this country is that you have to accept the attacks from a lot of crazy people. But, you know, there's there's for every crazy person, I think there are 10, uh, 10 good people, reasonable people, who even if they may not like uh, every position that I have, I think they recognize that public service is important. And we're going to do some, some good things for the people of Ohio. So uh, I, I feel good about our race. I feel good about where we are. And uh, I, I, I'll, I'll happily go on Morning Joe after we beat Tim Ryan in November. <laughs> right. So Tim Ryan, uh, who came into Congress sounding like a, a moderate, took on Nancy Pelosi, has voted with, uh, ran for president, did not go well, has voted with President Biden on 100 percent of the time, but now is coming off like some Republican who does not want the president to campaign with him. How do you deal with that? How do you deal with, you know, since Matt, this is your matchup. You, you just tell the truth, Brian. I mean, you know, political campaigns are, are really about message and about making sure that the people who you want to vote for you hear what you're trying to tell them. And what we're trying to tell them is pretty simple, that for all the TV commercials and all the pretense that Tim Ryan is some sort of moderate, he's voted with Joe Biden 100 percent of the time. He's voted with Nancy Pelosi 98 percent of the time. Uh, he has supported every radical position of the Democrats in the last couple of years, and he's he's completely turned his back on the people of Youngstown uh, during his time in Congress. And so he he was against the anti-China policies that President Trump initiated. He was against uh, the policies that brought American energy independence back. He's been fully on board with destroying American energy independence in the past couple of years, which is one of the big reasons why we have inflation. Really, it's spending and the fact that we don't have energy independence. That's what's driving uh, the cost of goods for everyday Americans. So look, uh, the, the, the policy record is clear. This guy has stood with the radicals every step of the way. He's made us poor. He's made, it, made us less safe in the state of Ohio. And I just think if people know the truth about him, it's not going to be close. But the person you're replacing, if you win, will be someone known as a moderate in Senator Portman, uh, fiscally conservative, but moderate on most issues. You will be more conservative than him. Does that concern you? Do you think Ohio's changed since six years ago when Senator Portman ran? No, I, I mean, look, Rob, Rob's been a good senator. You're right that I'm probably more conservative than, than him on a few issues. But I, I think at the end of the day, people just want you to be who you are. And, and look, you know, everybody, um, you know, disagrees with somebody on at least one issue. But so long as your heart's in the right place and, and importantly, so long as you're working hard in service of the people who sent you there, 
I think there are a lot of people who are very excited about what, what I'm trying to do. And, and you know, yeah, you know, I, I actually do think Ohio is a more conservative state probably than it was 10 years ago. I think I've probably become more conservative than I was 10 years ago just because the far left has gone so crazy. I mean, who would have believed, you know, 10 years ago that you would have – uh, the, 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 the president of the United States and others defending harassing Supreme Court justices um, while they're having dinner with their families. I mean, these people have really jumped the shark. You know, I think a lot of us in Ohio are looking around and saying, well, well, why are, have we allowed such lawlessness, such chaos to infect our country? We've got to start fighting back. So we have a, a situation where the president of the United States took over a country that a 1.4 percent uh, inflation now it's at nine. It's over nine percent and affecting the Midwest. Inflation is affecting the Midwest where you are even more. What's your reaction? Is this the president's policies or the reaction most Western countries have to the pan- post-pandemic life? Well, I, I think it's the president's policies. And if you look at you know what was happening a year ago, and, and some of us like me on the campaign trail were sounding alarm about the inflation crisis, about the supply chain crisis, about the energy crisis, uh, a lot of us were saying this is a problem. And what was the president saying? It's transitory. And then, of course, it was Vladimir Putin's fault. And now it's gotten so bad that you can't, you can't say it's temporary and you can't even blame Vladimir Putin anymore, at least not mostly. And so I, I think it, it really does fall on, on the president. It falls on the president's policies. And you're right, inflation is also pretty bad in Europe, but Europe has done the same stupid thing that we've done in this country, which is try to move our economy too quickly away from traditional energy sources. And so, you know, the Germans, yeah, they have a pretty bad inflation problem. The U.K. has a bad inflation problem. And what, what all of us have in common is that we've had leadership that is trying to destroy our natural national energy resources, and that's driving up costs for everybody. So when I look at the Europeans, I don't say, well, the Europeans are suffering too. That means that we haven't screwed up. I, I look at the Europeans suffering and I say, we've all screwed up and we actually need to turn the page here. So I look at what's happening in Europe and I think that the Ukraine, the supporting Ukraine is worth it. And I do think Russia is, he is a modern day Stalin. And I do think he's going to grab Georgia and Moldova next. Do you not feel that way? I'm skeptical, Brian. I mean, you know, this is one of the few issues I think where you and I disagree on. I, I think that one of the things the Ukraine war has revealed is that Putin is much weaker than than w- maybe we thought he was. I think it's he's probably much weaker than he and much thought more he ruthless. Was. Uh, I don't think I, I don't know what you know. I think he's a ruthless guy. I don't think he's a good guy. But I also think that he has very particular limitations. His country's pretty weak. Uh, it has you know it, it doesn't have the ability to march. Uh, all the way through through Eastern Europe. So I'm skeptical, not because I think Putin's a good guy, but because I think he's pretty limited. But you know that he'd be taking Kiev if we did not put this high support in. And would you be comfortable with Russia being at the doorstep of Western Europe, take just absorbing a country? Georgia would be easier than Ukraine. Would I be comfortable with it? No. But I think that we have to, you know, the cost and benefit here is how much am I willing to spend American treasure? And eventually, if we got to that point, American blood to prevent that outcome. And on the American blood question, just just not at all. I, I'm just not right. willing to put American resources uh, to try to prevent that or American lives to try to prevent that from happening. The other thing I'd say about this, this Brian, is that this has revealed how weak NATO is and how weak uh, the, the Western European countries are. I mean, these are some of the richest countries in the world, right? Germany has a per capita economy comparable to ours. The French do. The English do. Uh, the Germans have a terrible defense system. They don't spend 2% of their defense or 2% of their GDP on defense. A lot of the other European countries fall short as well. 
this should be a wake-up call. And so when I look at Europe, I say, look, Putin is primarily your guy's problem. I'm not saying we, we, shouldn't, uh, we shouldn't support them, but Putin is your guy's problem. You need to step up and take some leadership here and not just depend on the generosity of American taxpayers to foot your military bill. Are you happy with the team you have right now for the sprint through the summer and the fall? I really am, Brian. I mean, we had a great team in the primary, and we've obviously had to build on it. We've had to hire a lot of people very quickly uh, here in the last in the last couple of months. But I'll, I'll say this, Brian: we didn't have a single leak out of the Vance campaign. You know, it was a tough primary. We had some days that were very good and some days that were very bad. Uh, we didn't have any defections. We didn't have any people quitting. We got a great team, and I'm happy with it. JD Vance uh, on the quest in a, a virtual dead heat with Tim Ryan. It's going to be a battle to the end because he's running like a Republican in Ohio. Uh, Thanks so much, J.D. Best of luck. Thanks, Brian. Take care. You got it. When we come back, Carly Shimkus. More news. Don't move. A radio show like no other. It's Brian Kilmeade. So let's go back to the roots of this inflation. This inflation has its roots in the pandemic, uh, which snarled supply chains. Yes, just like other countries around the world, our federal government, our, our monetary system supported the economy so we could get through the pandemic. And now we have Russia's uh, in, uh, war against Ukraine. So when you add these together, we have an, the, the unacceptably high levels of inflation. It's been hard to predict this pandemic. It was We did not foresee the war, except for in the weeks uh, leading up to it. Um, and so this is why we have to express caution. But what we do know is that over the past year, we had historical growth in our economy and we've got a strong labor market. So we're in a position to address these challenges as the Fed uh, executes trying to bring inflation okay. down. And you know what that means? They're raising rates. It was 75 basis points. Now it could be 100, which means if you try to buy a house for the first time, you have a credit card, it's going to affect you. So as they try to rein in inflation, which is plaguing your life, they're going to up interest rates. Their hand is off the wheel. And there's a way to do this. Go back to see how Reagan did it. Find out what you liked and didn't like and find out to do something. But going there and trying to redo, build back better, to raise taxes on the rich, to vilify Vladimir Putin and elevate him higher than he deserves to be is not the answer. Someone who rarely agrees with me but is a nice person anyway is Carly Shimkus, co-host of Fox and Friends First. Yes, hello. How, how are you? I'm good. I always agree with you. Really? Yeah, for most things. I would say 95% of the things you say I agree with. So unlike Tim Ryan who pretends to be agreeing with Republicans, who's taking out ads on with, with on Fox, mm-hmm. where Fox News hosts are, uh, are praising him because he wants to pretend to be a Republican. You are not – your voting record is 100 percent in my corner. You're not pretending to be somebody you're exactly, not. Exactly, yes. I stand in the kill me corner. You had Brian Brenberg on your show today, mm-hmm. and he had a quote that stuck with me. He said, the 9 percent is higher – so much higher than they projected it to be – it's clear they have no idea how to control yeah, this. Exactly. And they don't know how how high um, it's actually going to go because they were so caught off guard by um, the fact that inflation was higher than they anticipated. And um, speaking of numbers, inflation, 9.1%. Average hourly earnings are up 5.1%. So people are losing money left and right. And that's why as they people lose money, it's the kitchen table issues. It's not about abortion. It's not about anything else other than the economy. That's what people care about the most. And President Biden can't rein it in. Uh, so far, 
yeah, he can't rein it in. And I think the right now blaming Vladimir Putin, saying it's high oil and gas, yelling at gas station owners, to me doesn't seem uh, doesn't seem like a step the in the ga- right direction. The gas station owners was a really good one. Right. The people that are making like basically minimum wage and making five cents on the dollar for every gallon of gas that they're sold. Yeah, it's their fault. No, absolutely not. That's ridiculous. Yeah, I thought so. I what about the cover? Uh, what about the cover of the New, of the New York Post today, where it yeah, says, it. Uh, "Repeat after me," which is "Repeat the line," which is exactly what he said. Clearly, reading the prompter again, and underneath it says, "Repeat the line." Inflation is historic highs again. Repeat the line. Biden blames everyone else again. He's got no plan again. So he left Saudi Arabia, Israel, four day trip. We'll discuss it, but there is no plan going yeah. forward. And I just think there's only one person who has apologized, and that's Janet Yellen for misleading us. Right. And maybe misleading business, small business, big business, about where this economy was headed. Yeah, and, well, they actually do have some semblance of a plan, and it, and it, it really is that they're trying to get Joe Manchin to sign back on to build back better. They want to pass a modified, smaller version of it. And apparently uh, those talks were going somewhat well where Manchin was considering possibly signing on to something having to do with drug prices or maybe child care. Uh, but then this inflation report came out and he said any um, spending that the government is considering right now would be a really bad idea. So it looks like BBB is DOA, which is probably for the best. I, Not probably, I hope so, definitely but, for the but best. But here's what he said, uh, pretty much what you just said, but I like to him do it because mm-hmm, yeah, you sound – he sounds more deep, like him. He's got a deeper voice. And he sounds like Joe Manchin. Right, right. You sound like Carl. Yeah. Cut 19. I just think that basically everyone should be very cautious of what we're doing and how we're approaching things now and looking at anything that could inflame the inflationary high numbers that we have. It's difficult right now. People are having a hard time paying their bills. They're having a hard time with inflation on everything they buy. When you look at all the cost of groceries today, when you look at the cost of gasoline, when you look at the cost of energy, the necessities that people have to live every day. It's extremely difficult in West Virginia and all over the country. So I'm just saying anything that I'm looking at, anything that people are conversing with me on, I'm scrubbing it the best I possibly can to see if anything could be causing more inflation. That's what I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, fuel oil up almost 100 percent. Gas unleaded regular up 61 percent. Uh, airline fare, 34 percent. Tires even up 15 percent. Um, and now the president's over in um, Saudi Arabia. Part of the deal is even though they've been really cagey about why they want to go over there, is they're obviously going to talk to um, the the king and the crown prince about possibly uh, pumping more oil and exporting it to lower gas prices. Here's the thing with that, Brian. First of all, we already heard from Emmanuel Macron that Saudi Arabia is maxed out. The other thing is refineries. So say, for instance, they do decide to increase their oil capacity, bring it back to the U.S., refineries in the the U.S. are at max capacity, so you can't even turn that oil into gasoline. That's a great point. A couple other things. So I was thinking about this this morning. If we went to Saudi Arabia and they had something like rare earth, like the Congo has, and you say, well, you know, I want to go to electric, I want to go to electric cars, I want to get these batteries, I want to go to, I need this rare earth. We need them. But when Saudi Arabia, when we go over there and say, listen, would you pump more? Well, they're just going to turn around and go, why don't you? You have more oil than us. 
Like, why do I have to pump why, more? Why, yeah, why I, are you I mean, putting this on me? Yeah, why, 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 why are That's you That's the doing? thing that makes no sense. And by the way, if you really cared about the planet, then we would be pumping. That We wouldn't be exporting this idea to other countries that produce it dirtier than the United States. We do. I was at a refinery recently, and they said they spent a billion dollars on um, trying to refine oil in the most eco-friendly way. Do you think they're doing that in Saudi Arabia and Russia? Absolutely not. All right. I, I, this is what I believe. Uh, I actually don't know what Joe Biden believes, but you would think that it would leak out that Joe Biden knows what it takes to get oil and gas going again, but he's concerned about his left flank. Charles Ga- Charlie Gasparino said this about what, what the administration is doing and why they're not doing it. By the way, the market is down 500 points. Unbelievable. The market, that's 1.5%, the S&P. Cut 28. The real question is from the Biden administration is why they don't loosen up regulations, particularly on oil, gas exploration. And certain there's certain things they can do that is so easy, but they won't. And I think the reason why they won't is because the progressive wing of the party is just hasn't by the by, you have been a stranglehold. Yeah. Why? It's a Why Brian, of course it's because of that. Because yeah. they, uh, the president and the Biden administration are already know that they're extremely unpopular uh, with the progressive wing of the party. The thing that's different uh, – well, there's a lot of things that are different between Trump and Biden. But one of the things when it comes to polling is that Trump always polled in the 90s when it came to his own party. I mean the – the progressives are already running against Biden. He does not have them. So if he I think wants 70 percent, according to the New York Times. Yeah. Poll. And then there's this progressive group that's already running ads against him and saying they don't not Joe Biden dot com or something like that. Um, so he doesn't want to do that's why he's pushing, you know, to codify Roe versus Wade and or doing everything that he possibly can when it comes to the abortion issue. He's thinking about this um, health emergency when it comes to abortion because he's he knows that he can't go super far, but he's trying to appease them as much as possible. And the other thing is green. And it's it's not green in terms of climate. It's money. Climate organizations give the Democratic Party so much money. and He doesn't want to piss them off either. Uh, well, lastly, I just want to talk before we bring General Lennington's going to be joining us and he is running the Wounded Warrior Project. They have their soldier ride today. He was uh, served for a couple of years uh, leading things over in Afghanistan. It's almost been a year since Afghanistan. Yes. We'll talk about that. But just on the foreign policy front, the president just had a press conference where he took a couple of questions, one of which was Iran and the other one was about the Abraham Accords. This is the first time he mentioned the Abraham Accords. Cut one. We'll also continue building on the Abraham Accords, which I strongly support because they deepen, they deepen Israel's integration into the broader region and establish lasting ties for business, cooperation and tourism. Between Israel, uh, Bahrain, United Arab Emirates, Morocco and five, uh, five overall nations, it was remarkable. And the only reason it happened is because Saudi Arabia green lighted it. Yeah. They were next if Trump had won another administration. But the key to that was their view and their stance on Iran. Yeah. And, you know, this is this is really interesting that uh, President Biden used the term Abraham Accords in uh, during an international speech. And this is really the first time that the president is embracing a, a foreign policy accomplishment of former President Trump, which is the Abraham Accords. He's not just embracing it. He's trying to expand upon it. And U.S.-Saudi relations are obviously very complicated. But the bottom line is that the United States has a common enemy 
with Saudi Arabia and Israel in Iran. And if Israel and Saudi Arabia can normalize relations and the Biden administration can help facilitate that, that's a very good thing. The thing that makes this complicated, though, is that he's in Israel right now. Um, at a time when he still wants to enter the Iranian nuclear deal, which would, if that gets signed, which it's not looking like it will, but if it does, that puts Israel in a terrible position. They don't want that to happen, especially at a time when um, Iran does have enough enriched uranium right now to make a nuclear weapon in weeks if they wanted to. Terrifying. So what happens is Iran goes, I'm not going to go into a deal that you're going to get reversed if you guys lose an election because it's never going to get ratified in the Senate. So listen to how insidious this is. They might sign off on a deal. If Iran's smart, they'd sign off on it. They might sign off a deal. Right now, Russia gets paid to take uranium out of your, uh, weapon, uh, uranium before they can get it to weapons grade out of their country. They say that they will sign a deal that allows Russia to bring that uranium back should America get out of it. Yeah. So this administration rather do a deal with the devil and Russia, who is the devil— then allow Republicans to implement a policy that would tear up this deal. Yeah. How how evil is that? I know. And the other thing is that who's helping the United States negotiate this Iran nuclear deal? Russia. Exactly. And remember, just a few months ago, the big concern was, is Russia going to use a nuclear weapon? So on one hand, the United States is terrified, and rightfully so, that Russia and Vladimir Putin would take that step. On the other hand, we're using Russia to help us facilitate an Iranian nuclear deal with our one of our greatest adversaries. Carly, stay right here. General Lennington with the Wounded Warrior Project's coming in. Uh, it's a big day as they head start their soldier ride today. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Giving you everything you need to know. You're with Brian Kilmeade. The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. Only the Wounded Warrior Project could shut down this street. Okay, we ready? So shut count down us. avenues of America. Here That's we right. go. So, General, should we put them on their journey? You want to count us down? I'm ready. ready. All right. You guys ready? All right. Three, two, one. Soldier ride. Woo! There you go. Uh, that was General Michael Lennington, me, and Fox and Friends with uh, Ainsley and Pete today as the Wounded Warrior Project uh, did their annual Soldier Ride program that was really chronicled for the first time on this show when Tony Snow was hosting it. This is a four-day cycling experience to help Wounded Warriors connect uh, with vets. It ends up at Stevens Talk House in the Hamptons, uh, and it got a lot of attention, and it should. It's a 19-mile trip out to Coney Island, and they're in the middle of it right now, all Wounded Warriors. General Mike, uh, Michael Lennington, welcome back to the Brian Kilmeade Show, and I've negotiated with Carly to stick around. Hope that's okay. That's wonderful, Brian. Thank you, Carly. Good to see you again. Oh, it's so good to see you. Let, let's just, for people just tuning in around the country— uh, soldier Ride. Why is it important? You're, you're located in Jacksonville, but you're here in New York City to launch this. Soldier Ride is one of our signature programs that gets wounded, ill, and injured service members back re-engaged with their brothers and sisters in arms. It's a health and wellness event. It's a three- or four-day ride. We're riding more than 70 miles over the next three days. It really does reconnect wounded veterans with their brothers and sisters in arms and start the healing process. So it's it's a physical event. It's a challenging event, but it also has incredible uh, mental health, emotional wellness um, uh, support functions as well. And it really, it really is a wonderful event. 
Uh, yeah, uh, that's amazing. And I think that it, you know better than anybody that uh, one of the things that people struggle with when they come back, veterans, is the fact that they don't feel like they're a part of a team anymore. So to be around so, – and there are hundreds of people that are in this ride, right? I mean, it just seemed endless. We're doing uh, – today we have about 40 warriors riding. We have U.K. veterans uh, riding So 40, but us. they got a big presence because I thought it was hundreds. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, we have, we have hundreds riding tomorrow in Babylon. Today we're riding over the Brooklyn Bridge into Coney Island. We have a very solemn event at Coney Island with the FDNY honoring the 343 that were killed from FDNY. Uh, tomorrow we're doing about 20-plus mile, 25-mile ride in, uh, in Babylon. And then Saturday is a grueling ride, more than 25 miles in the Hamptons. General, uh, General Linnington, you served in Afghanistan. What years? Uh, I was there uh, twice, Brian. I was there in the early days of 2002 for a short period of time. Uh, when we, I was a brigade commander, we were the only brigade in Afghanistan at the time. And then I was back in Afghanistan shortly uh, for for uh, 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 well Iraq for uh, Iraq for fifteen months and then back for uh, twenty one months in uh, two thousand nine to two thousand eleven. So just to follow up on that, I mean, I it just kills me every time I think about the Afghanistan, the way we left, the way we were told it would be a totally different ending than it was. But worse yet, I thought about you guys. They gave yeah. so much. You know, people that that lives have been changed and lost. Right. In Afghanistan. And you guys fought brilliantly, adapted to the battlefield, took out terrorists, uh, proved yourself you were, you were raising a generation of women to have freedom, rights, and an education. And the way it ended, what are your thoughts as we come out the year anniversary and how much more difficult is your job because of it? August 27th, the, the, uh, the disaster at Abbey Gate obviously was, I mean, it was, it was a very sad day for anyone that has ever served uh, 2,448 killed in Afghanistan, more than 20,000 wounded. Wounded Warrior Project today serves 170,000 uh, plus wounded ill and injured service members. Uh, 30,000 of that 170,000 had combat experience in Afghanistan, and we called them all, and they were contacting us. It was a very um, difficult time for them. Of course, they questioned their service. Uh, they questioned uh, – you know, whether it was worth it, you know, many of them lost their brothers and sisters in arms in Afghanistan. Many of them had uh, got wounded in Afghanistan. So they did question their service and we did our best as other nonprofits do. And uh, just reminding them that, you know, you serve for lots of reasons. You serve for each other. You serve for the freedoms we enjoy as Americans. Um, I also believe that they provided opportunities for the Afghan people, especially women and girls, that maybe will blossom again in the future. Obviously, the Taliban had turn back on a lot of the, a lot of the uh, rights of the Afghan people. And that's what's so disheartening. But, you know, once you plant the seeds of freedom and, and education, uh, hopefully things will turn around in Afghanistan. How did you feel about the Biden administration? Um, I can't believe it's been a year, but it has been uh, almost a year next month, uh, essentially bending the knee to the Taliban and allowing them to dictate terms of the withdrawal. You know, I wasn't in the room when those decisions were made. I know I was in the room when uh, America um, made the decision to expand the mission in Afghanistan in 2009 with an additional 40,000 troops, 30,000 U.S. and 10,000 NATO troops because we needed to get the insurgency under control. I was there, again, 21 months, 09 to 11. Um, you know, coming out, I think coming out that quickly uh, I think we all look back at it in hindsight and say it could have been done differently. Yeah. And my personal perspective, again, not representing the organization, um, I would have liked to have seen us to stay and support the Afghan of government. Of course.
the uh, the leadership is not worthy of the warfighters. WoundedWarriorProject.org. Thanks so much, General. Thanks, Brian. Live from the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice. Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for being here, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. Coming to you from 48th and 6th in Midtown Manhattan, heard around the country, around the world. The President of the United States is overseas, and he's in the Middle East. And it makes you think of Dennis Ross, the man who wrote uh, the most comprehensive series of books on the Middle East peace process, the Abraham Accords, and everything else. Dennis Ross will be with us at the bottom of the hour. Mark Thiessen standing by as we uh, bring you uh, the latest, because we did have a press conference already, and the president has already moved on day two of a four-day event. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. Every time we talk about amnesty on the record, more migrants come. They, they want to be a part of that giveaway program. The president of Mexico knew exactly what he was doing. It's going to cause more people to cross the border. Uh, that is, you know, Tom Homan, Broken Border, a gateway for criminals and illegals that are pouring in over our border, and the numbers are surging at a time traditionally when it's too hot to travel. And what the Mexican president said to make it even worse. Number two. We've laid out for, for, for the leadership of Iran what we're willing to accept in order to get back in the JCPOA. We're waiting for the response, but we are not going to wait forever. Yeah, really? Uh, why would you try to get him in a 2015 agreement that should have been dead on arrival, that was not even approved by the majority of the Senate at the time. Day two in Israel for President Biden, the pomp and circumstance and flattery is overwhelmed by the the administration's uh, farcical folly of trying to get archenemy Iran into a terrible nuke deal that has alienated the Sunni part of the Middle East, an unnecessary fail. Number one. This inflation has its roots in the pandemic. Our monetary system supported the economy so we could get through the pandemic. And now we have Russia's uh, in, uh, war against Ukraine. Add these together, we have an, the, the unacceptably high levels of inflation. Oh, the excuse is devastating. That's how all must view the record 9.1% inflation rate. And all efforts are spin and deception from the administration. Let's bring in uh, Mark Thiessen right now. Mark, welcome back. Washington Post columnist, Fox News Good contributor. Good to be with you, Brian. Well, uh, first off, uh, I just want you to comment on the inflation. Uh, Putin price hike, we're blaming it on uh, the pandemic. Nobody's blaming it on the rescue uh, package that we didn't need to yeah, rescue, well, be rescued. Well, a lot of people are. The uh, Larry Summers, former Obama economic advisor, former Clinton Treasury secretary, said uh, he warned before they passed the American Rescue Plan that if you passed a $1.9 trillion spending bill, it would... Uh, uh, social spending disguised as COVID relief, it would lead to the worst inflation in a generation. And he was proven right. Uh, Steve Ratner, uh, another Obama economic advisor, was on Morning Joe, and he said the same thing. Uh, he said, thank God Joe Manchin stopped them from spending more. Or we'd have even worse inflation. So everybody seems to uh, understand this except uh, the, uh, the, uh, the folks in the Biden administration. I mean, it's just economics 101. If you Pour free government money into the economy. Uh, that's going to do two things. It's going to increase demand and it's going to restrain supply because people don't have to work. And so we have a record labor shortage with 11.5 million. Yeah, we... People are buying. So that's going to lead to inflation. And it's and it's un, it's unhinged how far how bad it is. So they're trying to work on a build back better plan. It was scaringly moving fast on a reconciliation path. 
Senator Joe Manchin and Chuck Schumer, but I sense that 9.1% inflation might have spooked him. I hope. My fingers are crossed. Here's what yeah. Manchin said when he was asked yesterday. Let's listen. Cut 20. President Biden said the inflation number today is outdated because it doesn't include a small drop in gas prices we've seen recently. Is he right to blame the data for a bad, a historically bad inflation number? Well, I would, I mean, I would hope that he was right and that we wouldn't be, but I, that's the same people that might have given him information saying it was transitory (laughs) a year ago and it wasn't transitory. So I'm just going to say, if you're going to err, err on the side of caution right now. That's all. The people can't take much more. Right. And tax increases, even corporate tax increases, taking the upper bracket tax increases is not something that I think that benefits anyone. It should not be in anyone's calculus. No, 100 percent. Look, they are the Biden administration clearly has not learned its lesson from the American Rescue Plan. And they're trying to get they wanted to get three point five trillion dollars in spending. Uh, Joe Manchin said no to that, and they're uh, they're trying to get him to sign off on one trillion dollars uh, before before they lose control of Congress with a budget reconciliation bill, and he, and like that that nine point one figure uh, spooked him. Uh, that may be the best thing that ever happened to our country because uh, if we pass another trillion dollars in spending and raise taxes, uh, then you know we're on the knife's edge of a recession right now. You know, I was I had on my podcast, I had uh, Michael Strain, who's the head of economic policy at, at the American Enterprise Institute. And he, I asked him, like, you know, is what are the odds of stagflation? You know, back like in the 1970s when we had under the Carter administration, and he said stagflation is the best scenario, best case scenario. We, wow. the, worst, the worst case scenario is like runaway inflation with a with a recession, uh, which is where we're headed right now if we don't change course economically. A um, couple of things. Uh, first off, let's uh, pivot to foreign policy. The president of the United States about four hours ago uh, took some questions. Rarely does he take questions. He was asked about the Iranian deal. Clearly, the Israelis are concerned about uh, reinvigorating this Iranian deal. And the question was, how long will you wait? Even though it's an easy escape follow-up question, cut three. We've laid out for the people, for, for, for the leadership of Iran, what we're willing to accept in order to get back in the JCPOA. We're waiting for the response, but we are not going to wait forever. We're waiting for the response to get back in the 2015 deal that is about to expire anyway, that will alienate the allies that we uh, combined with to create the Abraham Accords. Does this make any sense to you? It makes no sense to me at all. Look, the, the, the drive for this is in part from Europe. Uh, because the Europeans are desperate for another source of, uh, of oil uh, now that Russia, Russian oil is off the table, so they'd rather take it from Iran. Uh, the Biden administration wants this, but there's no support for this in Congress. There's even less support for this in Congress than there was when Obama did it. Uh, Bob Menendez, the chairman of the House uh, for, uh, Foreign, uh, so the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, who's a Democrat, he, he said that they shouldn't negotiate this deal. There was just on June 1st, there was a bipartisan resolution passed with the support of 16 Democrats, including Chuck Schumer and Menendez, uh, saying that no deal that doesn't address their use of terror, uh, their use of terrorism and uh, and uh, and and the and other conditions. So, you know, the, the Democrats in Congress oppose this. Uh, so I don't I don't see this happening if it does. Uh, you know, it would, and, and quite frankly, this, this administration, Donald Trump,
Trump had had negotiated not one, not two, but three Arab-Israeli peace accords, and Saudi Arabia was on the cusp of signing one. Trump had been reelected. We'd have a, a Saudi-Israeli peace accord right now, in all likelihood. And Biden has absolutely thrown that away by alienating the Saudis, by alienating Israel, and and cuddling Iran. Iran is the threat. Saudi Arabia is our ally. It's the bulwark against Iran in the Middle East. And they're and they're, they're alienating our. They're doing the same thing the Obama administration did. Alienate our allies, suck up to our enemies, um, and. Yeah, you're going in and out a little bit, but I want to get one more question in about what's going on in Ukraine. The Ukraine is trying to get on the offensive and take parts of Kyrgyzstan back and take advantage of the so-called Russian pause. These high Mars that we just sent over are beginning to have an effect. They also have either they were asking for ones that go 100 miles instead of the ones we gave them. They go 50 miles. Uh, what do you how do you characterize what's been happening in Ukraine right now as the Russians willing to sacrifice their people and kill civilians in order to make advances in the Donbass? Look, the, the there, there's going to be eventually Ukraine war fatigue in the West. The Europeans are not going to want to have these sanctions on forever. They're not going to want to be spending all this money on defending Ukraine. Uh, the Biden administration, Biden, as we talked about the other day, he keeps talking, blaming Putin for and the Ukraine war for all the price hikes and the inflation that we're experiencing, which is going to undermine public support for the effort. If you want to end this fast, the way to do it is to flood the zone with every possible weapon that we could give them. Give it to them now so that they can especially pause. The reason for the pause is because the Russians are they're running out of equipment. And so let's take advantage of that and help the Ukrainians take advantage of that by flooding them with weapon that we can so they can take back some of this territory and end this thing. They uh, met face-to-face for the first time in months yesterday. Uh, Turkey's trying to make that happen. They're trying to work out a way to get the grain out of Ukraine so Africa doesn't starve to death, uh, let alone what's going to happen in Brazil. Uh, thanks so much. Appreciate it, Mark. Take care. 1-866-408-7669. Let's start flooding the zone now with calls. Bottom of the hour, I'll go in-depth in what's happening in the Middle East because the guy might be the smartest, most experienced person in the region, Dennis Ross. He worked for both Republican and Democratic administrations. Yeah, he's one of those. That story. But you're next on The Brian Kilmeade Show. Coming to you on a need-to-know basis because, man, do you need to know. It's Brian Kilmeade. If you're interested in it, Brian's talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmeade. As more people are concerned about inflation, Joe Biden's disapproval rating climbs ever higher. How does President Biden stack up against other presidents at this time in administration's past? Uh, Yeah, so we can look at both Joe Biden's disapproval rating on inflation and Joe Biden's disapproval rating overall. And what we see is his his disapproval rating on inflation is topping 70%. His disapproval rating overall is still in the 50s. But if you compare that to every single other president at this point in the first term, throughout polling history, this goes all the way back since the 1940s, he is the worst on both. And the reason he is the worst overall is because inflation is eating his presidency alive at this point. And that uh, that was a commentary heard on CNN, believe it or not. And you could tell Anderson Cooper did not want to hear that. But you didn't really have a choice because when you bring economic experts on, it's not a matter of cheerleading. The guy's name is Harry Enton. 
So maybe he's not going to be booked again for a while. Or if they decide that it's time for him to go, you know, Joe Biden's got to go turn the page. He's too old. Like the New York Times seems to be saying, they'll book him over and over again. Brian, listen to WMNC in Elkhart, Indiana. Hey, Brian. Uh, yeah, Brian. Um, I just want to let you know that the RV industry over here is starting to lay off people by the hundreds. And now wow. hiring signs that were up a month ago are no longer up, but they're building like crazy, and it's just weird. You mean they're building RVs like crazy or building in, building, in Elkhart? I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, yeah, they're building in Elkhart, but the RV industry itself is starting to take a real bad hit. Hundreds have been laid off in the last month. Wow. Uh, so that assumed, I, mean, I wonder what the reasons for that is, because you guys are the capital, the RV capital of the world. And if people are building that, just to play this out, is it because RVs are looked at as a luxury item and that's the first thing to go? Yeah, and gas prices are also taking a hit. I mean, over here, the average right now is like 463. And most of them, you know, I mean, they're towed by, you know, big trucks and it, it diesels, um, you know, right at $6 a gallon over here. So it's just, it, it, it's just, you can see it starting to take a real bad effect over here. Brian, thank you for that. And we always love our listeners in MNC. Brian, uh, Bill is listening on KFTK in St. Louis, Missouri. He was on with, uh, I was on there yesterday, Mark Reardon. Hey, Brian. Greetings from the heartland. How are you? Well, great. What's on your mind, Bill? You know, there's Pete and Price Hike. I think we're all sick of hearing about it. But I, I contend it wouldn't have happened if... Uh, Biden had bungled Afghanistan. He's feckless and weak on foreign policy. And I think uh, Putin's calculus was now's the time to go and took full advantage of uh, this incompetency. So really, it it goes back to it's not a Putin price hike. It's a Biden price hike all set up by Biden for Putin to go in there. And Bill, just listening to you, it reminds me of when he was talking about Afghanistan. They said, is this going to be like Saigon? He said, it's not going to be like Saigon. It was actually worse. And this army has been trained for the last 20 years. They're extremely well equipped. They're not going to fall to the Taliban. They're not going to fall right away. They fell right away to the Taliban. Then when it comes to inflation, we're not going to, this is going to be a small blip. Inflation is going to be transitory. It is not transitory. Remember this, cut 16. Our economists have conveyed that uh, they feel that the impact uh, of our proposals will be transitory. All of the economists uh, that the president has been relying on suggest that there is a transitory nature nature to the inflation uh, problem. Economists call all these things transitory effects. This inflation uh, that we're experiencing is transitory. It is not going to be here long. We've had several months of high inflation that um, most economists, including me, believe will be transitory. We don't expect that those uh, that, that upward pressure will produce uh, substantially higher prices or that the effects will be persistent. We expect that they'll be transitory or temporary. That's uh, Granholm Biden, uh, of course, Congresswoman Waters, of embarrassment to this country. Uh, Janet Yellen, the only one to admit she was wrong. And then uh, Chairman Powell, transitory. These are the people in charge. So Stephen Moore did this. I really encourage you. It'll probably be on tomorrow. Stephen Moore, this uh, esteemed economist, worked for Trump, helped design his tax cut plan. Just decided to take a study, and and he's worked with his company and said, let's just look at the background of the top 60 economic people in the Biden administration. Do you know what they have combined real-world business experience? Zero years. 
Zero years. So they have no idea what you're going through. They have no idea if you're a small deli, a dry cleaner, you're black, you know, a Blackstone, whatever it is. He has no idea. He has data and you have data and you have laboratory and you got professors and you have studies and theories, but you don't know what it's actually like to rent, to lease, to go for parking. Uh, all these things, it's only for you is a theory. And that's the problem. Why would you? I mean, obviously, the other administration, you had uh, you had the your commerce secretary with 40 years experience. You had Donald Trump with 50 years experience. Everyone around him had business experience. Larry Kudlow in and out of government, in and out of the real world, in and out of broadcasting. This is real world experience. But if you look at Afghanistan, you look at what's happening with the economy, you look at the promises when it comes to inflation. Nobody believes the president. Either he doesn't know or is outright lying. I think it's a little of both. Senator John Kennedy has a way of putting things. Cut 22. The American people are, are um, they're very disappointed in President Biden and his policies. A majority of Americans believe that he has mismanaged Congress. He's mismanaged COVID. He's mismanaged the border. He's mismanaged immigration. He's mismanaged crime. He's mismanaged America's uh, energy independence. He's mismanaged Afghanistan, he's mismanaged the the economy, and he's mismanaged inflation. Uh, Inflation is waterboarding the American people. People are scared they're not going to be able to retire until they're 92. Their 401ks have crashed. It's true. And he goes on to use a great analogy, cut 23. It doesn't give me joy to say this, but, but the American people figure it out sooner or later, and that's why at the moment... Um... The, how can I put this? The, um, the the creepy banjo kid in Deliverance is more popular than the president at the moment. <laughs> and he better reverse direction soon. It's hurting America and it's hurting him. Yeah, you just heard the economists we opened up the block with. Says it's eating. The Biden inflation is eating the Biden administration alive. And what's going to happen is going to get worse. Not only did he hire the B team, the B team is leaving. Someone just wrote me on the email. All you do is go to BrianKilme.com, click on comments or contacts. It says, uh, Brian, uh, I'm concerned that the Republicans bash Biden, rightfully so, but I've heard that we're Republicans. I want to hear the Republicans' agenda for the midterms after they win. What are they going to do? Great point, Randy. I appreciate it. I will bring that up. Dennis Ross is next inside the Middle East with somebody that knows as much as anyone. Radio that makes you think. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. We'll also continue building on the Abraham Accords, which I strongly support because they deepen, they deepen Israel's integration into the broader region and establish lasting ties for business, cooperation, and tourism. Uh, That is uh, just some of the comments the president made in a press conference with the interim prime minister of Israel. They're going to have elections soon. Dennis Ross joins us now. Uh, William Davidson, uh, distinguished fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy and probably the most experienced person in American Middle East policy uh, in the country and one of the top in the world. Uh, Dennis, always great to talk to you. Brian, always good to be with you. So I just find when the Abraham Accords and all these things happen, when earth-shattering, news-making things take place, I always think about you because you, you know all the players and you know where the Middle East has been. 
Israel and Palestine and the Palestinians are no longer the focal point. Am I correct? You are correct. It doesn't mean the Palestinian issue disappears because the Palestinians aren't going anyplace. But what you have in the region is a profound change. Many times when I'm asked the question, how are the Abraham Accords changing the region? I turn the question around and I say, what changed in the region that made the Abraham Accords possible? And what changed is that Arab states, especially the Sunni Arab states, increasingly came to see a reality where Palestinian leaders were not capable or willing to do anything to resolve the conflict uh, on their own. And the Arab states were no longer prepared to deny themselves what was in their interest, and that what was in their interest was not only a set of relations with the Israelis in the security domain, but also in the non-security areas related to water, food, health, and the like. And what we've seen, therefore, are Arab states who are saying, look, Palestinians, we're not forgetting you, but we're no longer prepared to sacrifice if you're not prepared to do much on your own. 100 percent. And the other thing they look at is they had a common enemy, and it's Iran. And when the president of the United Absolutely. States said the 2015 deal is not worth staying in, pulls out of it, and put on massive sanctions, that was a go sign for the Sunni world to say, uh, I'll recognize Israel if you continue to uh, understand that Iran is the enemy. We pick sides, no doubt about it, Ambassador. We pick sides. And it worked to the greater peace in the Middle East. And now the president, for the first time that I know of, mentioned the Abraham Accords as a good thing. But he's not running away. He's trying to get back into the Iranian deal. Is that smart? Well, I think, look, it depends on what the strategy is going to be. What I mean by that is the following. If you get back into the Iranian deal, what you do is you buy time until 2030 in terms of limiting their their program. The question is, what's your strategy for, A, using the time you bought, and B, what's your strategy for deterring the Iranians? And you need to deter the Iranians in the region because if you get back in the JCPOA, they will have a big infusion of of cash and resources. And if they can cause all the trouble they're causing in the region right now when they're under sanction, imagine what they can do afterwards. So you have to have a strategy to deter them there. But you also have to have a strategy to deter them after the year 2030, which is the sunset provisions when the, all the limitations on their program, uh, nuclear program, ends. So they need to know that if they move towards a nuclear weapon after 2030, we will take out militarily their entire nuclear infrastructure, which they've invested in the last 40 years of building. That way you can determine the nuclear front. You have to do much more in the region. And here the president is talking about uh, a regional security architecture that integrates Uh, Israel with the Arabs, and we can do that under the central command. We need to do much more there to send the signal to the Iranians that if they they begin to do much more in the region aggressively, there's going to be a price for them. They need to see the price if they move towards a nuclear weapon. They need to see the price as they move in, as they ratchet things up in the region. And in return for changing their behavior in in those areas, then, of course, they can have sanctions lifted and they can have a better economy. The choice, though, in many ways is the Iranians, and they have to see the consequences of not making that choice the right way. Ambassador, you talk as if the Iranians are rational players. They don't care about the unrest with their people. When they did get into this JCPOA, they started with ballistic missile launches almost taunting us. They began to create havoc, additional havoc in Syria. Um, I, to me, I, I think it's it's so naive to even think that they're going to be rational players. You have to treat them like the outlaws they are. 
Well, there's a difference, Brian, between being the outlaws or the rogues they are and whether they're rational or irrational. You could argue that if they don't think that they're going to pay a price with us, it's pretty rational to do the things that they're doing. My point is they need to understand they're going to pay a price. You know, when they don't pay a price, then they, they feel they have free reign to do the things that they're doing. You know the Israelis so believe you know the Israelis believe they were still moving forward uh, with their nuclear program and, and that they were and that they were breaching it already and the uh, they've already shut off the cameras uh, at their at their sites that we were supposed to be monitoring. Look, the Israelis think the Israelis think that basically they were observing the JCPOA. The problem the Israelis had was, and it's a legitimate problem, was that the JCPOA created a justification and a legitimacy for having a very large nuclear infrastructure. The JCPOA had them deferring their nuclear weapon options, not giving it up. So what the Israelis were saying is extend the, extend the sunset provisions forever. Don't, don't end the limitations on the size of their nuclear program, the character of their nuclear program in the year 2030. My point to you is, if you're going to get back into the JCPOA, and that ultimately seems to depend upon the Iranians because the administration wants to go back into it. If you're going to go back into the JCPOA, then the Iranians have to understand what what is the risk they're going to run if they decide to move towards a nuclear weapon after the year 2030. So in this negotiation, we're asking Russia to be the in-between, go-between. What could go wrong with that? Well, not so much the go-between, but the, the, actually the Europeans are acting as the go-between. But the Russians play an important role because all the material that will be shipped out of Iran, right now Iran has 18 times the amount of enriched uranium that they're permitted to have under the terms of the JCPOA. They are enriching the 60%, which is very close to, very close to weapons grade. They are installing advanced centrifuges, which they were not permitted to be installing until the beginning of 2026. So all these things have put them in a position where right now their their breakout time is pretty close to zero. All the materials they have in the country that they're not supposed to have gets shipped out. And where does it get shipped out to? It gets shipped out to Russia. So And we're paying the them to do are, it. We, the Russians get paid to do, to accept this uranium. I don't know that they get paid, but they they certainly they view it as being in their interest, obviously, to do it. And and clearly the Russians could, at a certain point, they could always send this stuff back to Iran. So, you know, there have to be some kind of safeguards built in against that. Anyway, I, I think that the Russians are not, because of of Ukraine, the Russians right now are not playing a role on this. What we are seeing is the Russians are drawing closer to, to the Iranians. And it is, think about it, Brian, it's it's actually quite extraordinary the Russians are going to get drones from the Iranians to get training from the Iranians on the drones. That tells you something about how much the Iranians have developed the drones, even while they've been under sanctions. It's unbelievable. And plus, they got a few uh, our technology. Some landed there. The JCPOA the expires between 2026 and 2030, 2031. So it's sunset. Yeah, so they exactly. could be they could decide, you know what, I think I want to make a nuclear weapon and I'm not violating anything. So they've they've go ahead. They've become they're part of the world oil market. They were able to trade. They're able to stand up their economy, uh, and then they were able to get a nuclear weapon. And yet they're still hesitating to get into this deal. To me, I think if the president of the United States wants to walk away with something tangible, 
How about getting out of this deal, putting the sanctions back on and telling the Saudis, we'll do all this if you recognize Israel. And then the president will have his first foreign policy victory. Well, it, it's an interesting case. The, uh, the One of the issues you have is sanctions are on the Iranians right now. They haven't been lifted. The real question will be, if we follow what you're suggesting, what do we need to do at the same time? So my my point would be, if you're if you're going to adopt this kind of a posture, it's not just economic sanctions, because they're already under sanction. The real issue has to be they have to know that if they move towards a weapon in their response to our walking away from mm-hmm. from any further negotiations, they have to understand they will risk their entire nuclear infrastructure. Today they don't believe that. Today they don't believe we'll use force. The president is saying in Israel today that we will. I think to make that to make the the rhetoric credible, we should be doing a number of things. I've advocated for some time. We pro- we provide the Israelis a massive ordnance penetrator. This was developed actually during the Obama administration. It is a mountain buster, not a bunker buster. The reason that's important is one of the enrichment sites in Iran is Fordow, which is built into a mountain. So Israel doesn't have the capability to destroy that site, but if we provided them the massive ordnance penetrator. They would have that. That would send a pretty impressive signal to the Iranians, because even if they don't think that we'll act militarily, that would send a signal that we will support the Israelis doing so. So my point to you is, and I would actually argue, whether you whether you stay in the JCPOA, whether you go back to JCPOA or you leave the JCPOA or there is no JCPOA, if we don't have a strategy of deterrence towards the Iranians that they believe, we're going to face all these problems anyway. My point is, whether you're in the JCPOA or you're not, we need a strategy of deterrence, and today we don't have it. Well, we managed to do the almost impossible. Uh, we got the Saudis and Iranians equally mad at us with the current policy because we called them a pariah nation because of the horrific thing they did to Khashoggi uh, and, and maybe some other actions. But Saudi Arabia has never had a government that we wanted to uh, wanted to mirror. But we also know that by taking the Houthi rebels off the, terror, uh, uh, the terrorist list— that was a, that was something looked at as a direct rebuke to Saudi Arabia because they're relatively rocketing populated civilian civilian populated areas. So that was also so we managed to alienate both. The Iranians were nothing to do with us. And up until now, neither did the Saudis. What do you think is going to happen today? You write a column about there was no reason to walk away from from human rights concerns at the same time deal with Saudi Arabia. In what way? How do you do that? I think the way you do it is, uh, A, to be very clear that uh, human rights concerns are going to continue. They help to define who we are, so we're not walking away from those. You raise with, in private, you raise with uh, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia. You raise what our concerns are. You say, if we see certain kinds of behaviors, we will be public. We won't be private. Let's establish certain boundaries. We won't surprise you. You don't surprise us. Um, in the areas where we have to manage our differences, we'll do that, but we won't, and we're not going to walk away from our concerns. But we also have profound common interests. You know, we both want to prevent Iran from becoming a nuclear weapon state. We both want to prevent Iran's destabilizing behaviors in the region. We both want to have a long-term stability in the oil market, especially for the next two decades. It's going to take us. Uh, it's going to be a transition period away from fossil fuels. We don't want to have $5 a gallon gasoline because we have surges. You have an interest in a stable oil market. We have an interest in a stable oil market. You have an interest in 
developing alternative energies and, and green hydrogen and green energy. Let's collaborate on all these things together. The areas where we have profound common interest, especially uh, given the struggle with Russia and China, let's build uh, our relationship along these lines. Uh, we're not asking you to change who you are, but we're not going to change who we are. The, the reality is you are carrying out a huge social transformation within Saudi Arabia, a great social liberalization. That's in our interest. We want to see you succeed in your modernization efforts and national transformation. Let's build a relationship on that basis. I think that's a very strong message, and I think it's one that would be accepted within Saudi Arabia. I'm concerned about the anti-Israel feeling among the new generations of Democrats. Uh, I, and yeah. I, it's not lost. It, they're not being shy about it. Here's, here's what President Biden was asked about that by Israeli television, Cut 8. There are also other voices in the Democratic Party, sir, voices that say that Israel is an apartheid state calling for an end of unconditional aid. There's an undeniable gap between you and those voices. There are a few of them. Mm-hmm. I think they're wrong. I think they're making a mistake. He thinks they're wrong. I love the answer he gave, but are you concerned about that? I am concerned about it because there's a they are looking at Israel through a, through a prism that is a distorted prism. They are treating a country that is fundamentally a democracy uh, as if it is not. Uh, they look at the conflict between Israelis and Palestinians as if the Israelis are the sole party responsible for why there's a conflict. They ignore anything that the Palestinians do, including in the areas of of denial of, of human rights. Uh, you know, if you are a Palestinian gay, the only place you're safe is if you go to Tel Aviv. You know, they they are distorting the nature of the conflict. It is not to say that that everything the Israelis do towards the Palestinians is right or is defensible. You can criticize the things that are wrong, but you can't distort what Israel is. Exactly. Israel is a democracy, and it remains the only democracy in the Middle East. Dennis Ross, always educational to be with you. Thanks so much. My pleasure. Good to be with you. You got it. Uh, I'm going to be back with your. I want to get your insight on the insight we just provided. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. So glad you're here. Learning something new every day on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Breaking news, unique opinions. Hear it all on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Welcome back, everybody. I got some uh, news, an update on Benjamin Hall. You know, in Ukraine, uh, his uh, crew was attacked by an IED. We're not really sure the details of what happened, but he's out there with the Ukrainian troops, and he was targeted by a a Russian force, hit by a rocket. And uh, Ben was lucky to survive, no doubt about it. Uh, Ahead of his 40th birthday, uh, our CEO, Suzanne Scott, and the, the president of news, Jay Wallace, went out and visited him, and they just put out this. There's a great picture of how he's doing in Texas. And basically, he's at the Brook Army Medical Center in Texas, and the military had a lot to do with getting Benjamin out. He was in a Ukrainian hospital getting terrible uh, care. It's the middle of a war zone. They had no equipment. They say he has a long road to full recovery, but his progress over the last four months has been nothing short of remarkable. Uh, Of course, uh, London Bureau Chief Dragan Petrovich recently traveled to see Ben as well and was just as heartened by the visit. Ben asked us to let the entire team of Fox News media know he's doing well, misses his Fox family, and most of all, he wanted to express how thankful he is for everyone reaching out and for the continuous support over the last several months. He's looking forward to returning home to be with his wife and children. 
uh, and Labrador Retriever. He also looks forward to returning to the Fox family. I'm sure we're going to see him on air again, but he uh, he underwent his very harrowing situation. Uh, Benjamin Hall, uh, who goes in the middle of uh, goes in the middle of these fights, and you understand the risks. And one of the big risks that I think is underappreciated is that he wasn't with the American forces. It's never when you're embedded, you're never with this. There's always a chance you're going to get hit. But when you're not uh, when you're not with the American forces, Ukrainian forces who were pretty much untested, you're really taking risk. And we saw that quick note on my note. I have a chance to talk about those stories and more about Fox and about red, white and blue events in my seven New York Times bestsellers. I'll be uh, August 27th. If you want to buy tickets and go live VIP opportunities to get a chance to meet you in person. Go to the New Jersey Performing Arts Center, August 27th. Just go to briankillme.com and get tickets. If you're going to be in Albany, New York, I'll be at The Egg, September 8th. Uh, go get tickets now, and then I'll get a chance to talk about my book, answer all your questions, and get to meet you personally. Then November 12th, City Hall Live in Brandon, Mississippi, and Tulsa, Oklahoma, KRMG listeners. That'll be November 13th, briankillme.com. From the Fox News Radio studios in New York City, giving you opinions and facts with a positive approach. It's Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for being here, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. A lot going on. The president oversees. A lot of action happening here uh, at home, and we'll be uh, going over it. Uh, we know Governor Abbott's holding a press conference today about the growing fentanyl pri- crisis. He's trying to get people, uh, aside from us, to pay attention. I wonder if they will. We know Nancy Pelosi in about 90 minutes will have a press conference. Will that ever come up? She doesn't even care. She blows it off. My hope is that she's going to be forced into retirement in about three months. Because would she ever go back into the minority if Kevin McCarthy emerges as the next speaker like he's like to, uh, likely to? Byron York is standing by. Robert For- uh, Ford, uh, ambassador to Syria from 2011 to 2014, will be joining us on the Middle East and how the president's trip is being received. But first, let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. Every time we talk about amnesty on the record, more migrants come. They, they want to be a part of that giveaway program. The president of Mexico knew exactly what he was doing. It's going to cause more people to cross the border. That is uh, Tom Homan, the broken border, a gateway for criminals and illegals. I got it. But guess what the Mexican president did? By referencing there's a path, he wants a pathway to citizenship. It's a go sign. It's going to get worse. Number two. We've laid out for, for the leadership of Iran what we're willing to accept in order to get back in the JCPOA. We're waiting for the response, but we are not going to wait forever. Right. Maybe it is because we've been waiting for your response since you took over. Day two in Israel, the president and the pomp and circumstances and flattery is overwhelmed by the administration's ridiculous attachment to this 2015 Iranian deal. They don't want to get into it. Nobody wants us into it, but the president wants to get back into it. Lose, lose, lose. Number one. This inflation has its roots in the pandemic. Our monetary system supported the economy so we could get through the pandemic. And now we have Russia's uh, in, uh, war against Ukraine. Add these together, we have an, the, the unacceptably high levels of inflation. Uh, that is true. And that is a count, the Council of Economic Advisors chairperson, Cecilia Roos, 
devastating. That's how we all must view the 9.1% inflation rate. And all efforts at spin and deception from the Biden administration are in play. They blame the Putin price hike. They blame the pandemic. Do they possibly blame all their spending and their quest to raise prices? I'll tell you right now, the market's down 500 points. Byron York, you probably knew that already, chief political consultant, Washington Examiner. Byron, welcome back. Hey, Brian, good to be here. First off, the 9.1%, you know, we haven't had this in, in 40 years. Oh, and we, there was a way to get out of this. I'm not too sure raising taxes is the best way, but traditionally raising interest rates is, correct? Yeah, and we expect to see the Fed raise interest rates by three-quarters of a point, maybe a full point, um, which, I mean, uh, will increase the chances that the economy does go into recession. So it, it's, it's really a double-edged sword here. I think what's extraordinary, and I've been writing about this for quite a while, um, by the end of last year, 2021, there was kind of a bipartisan consensus that these massive spending bills that Democrats uh, passed in Congress had uh, made inflation worse. Um, even uh, there was an article in the liberal publication Vox that basically said that. So there was a bipartisan consensus. Um, and if you remember, uh, after uh, the uh, bipartisan infrastructure bill passed and after the COVID relief bill passed, uh, Democrats moved on to what they called Build Back Better, which is going to be their huge uh, Biden agenda bill, maybe three and a half trillion dollars, just insane numbers. Uh, and Joe Manchin stopped it. And one of the reasons he stopped it, he, he said, this feeds inflation. It's a bad idea. Inflation is already bad. And let's don't make it worse. But that's exactly what Democrats tried to do. And what's incredible now is now, even after this report of inflation at 9.1 percent, Senate Democrats are still trying to salvage a really big spending bill to see if they can pour more fuel on the fire before the midterm elections. So Joe Manchin spoke yesterday to our uh, Hillary Vaughn. And I think that he was really alarmed by the 9.1% inflation. Read between the lines for me here. Cut 19. I just think that basically everyone should be very cautious of what we're doing and how we're approaching things now and looking at anything that could inflame the inflationary high numbers that we have. It's difficult right now. People are having a hard time paying their bills. They're having a hard time with inflation on everything they buy. When you look at all the cost of groceries today, when you look at the cost of gasoline, when you look at the cost of energy, the necessities that people have to live every day, it's extremely difficult in West Virginia all over the country. So I'm just saying anything that I'm looking at, anything that people are conversing with me on, I'm scrubbing it the best I possibly can to see if anything could be causing more inflation. That's what I'm concerned And, and he went on to, to talk about, you know, the spending issues. So do you think this might go said the same path or do you fear that there might be a pathway on reconciliation for a, a bill back better, too? Well, first of all, Manchin is a Democrat. Now, he has really frustrated his party, but he is a Democrat. So there may be some level of spending that he would be comfortable with, especially if it benefits West Virginia a lot. Uh, but clearly, the stuff he is saying now sounds a lot like the stuff he was saying uh, when he put a stop to Build Back Better at the end of last year. It was in December of last year. He releases a statement. Inflation is, I don't think, maybe around 8 percent at that point uh, and says this is just too much. So he's saying, he's saying very similar things now 
And I would be very surprised if he didn't do the same thing he did then. I hope so. I, I hope you're right. Uh, and now I'll just I'll play you one more mansion to maybe kind of fortify your belief. Cut 20. President Biden said the inflation number today is outdated because it doesn't include a small drop in gas prices we've seen recently. Is he right to blame the data for a bad, a historically bad inflation number? Well, I would, I mean, I would hope that he was right and that we wouldn't be, but I, that's the same people that might have given him information saying it was transitory (laughs) a year ago and it wasn't transitory. So I'm just going to say if you're going to err, err on the side of caution right now. That's all. The people can't take much more. So, I mean, I feel a little bit better after hearing that. So if he's going to raise yeah. the corporate tax rate and uh, different spending plans, I think that that will go against what he's been saying. Absolutely. And, and it, he, he was really taking a little jab at the White House there. No kidding. And uh, saying that, look, this, these efforts to spin away inflation, to say that these numbers were old and maybe inflation was really bad two months ago, but it's much better today. I mean, it's just not working. Um, the, the numbers within the 9.1% uh, for food, for groceries, for fuel oil, for gasoline, for uh, new cars, used cars, all these numbers are really, really bad. So here again, Joe Manchin is saying the same thing uh, that he said last year, and my guess is it's going to have the same result, which is mm-hmm. it's going to frustrate the Democrats who want to get one more big spending bill in before they likely lose power in November. Byron York, our guest. Byron, I was—I I just uh, threw up my hands over the weekend, so I read the New York Times story about them suddenly realizing that Joe Biden's old. The same way I felt when they suddenly <laughs> realized the laptop was real. You wrote a column about that. What do you take about why the New York Times is writing this and put those horrendous poll numbers in, assuming they're accurate, yeah. that shows he's got 33% approval rating? Well, it is interesting. On Saturday, New York Times drops this piece uh, that Biden is testing the boundaries of age for the president. No kidding. Which is a diplomatic way to say he's too old. And then, like, Sunday night or Monday morning, they drop this um, new poll that shows that 64% of Democrats want a different nominee in 2024. 64% of Democrats. The president is a Democrat. Uh, so, it, you know, it almost appeared as if the New York Times were helping lay, lay the foundation for an effort to push Biden out. Because remember, there have been a lot of stories out of the White House saying, look, the president is going to run again. What part of that do you not understand? And we have heard reports that Joe Biden has kind of convinced himself that despite his age, he is the only man who can defeat Donald Trump if it comes to that. So he tells Democrats, I am the only man standing between us and the, the Trumpian abyss, the disaster that would be Donald Trump. So, uh, you know, he seems to have convinced himself of that. And this effort by The New York Times seemed to lay a foundation for Democrats to say no. So the president uh, prides himself on his foreign policy, too. And he also, we watch him and he has all these issues with China, never addresses the pandemic. Vladimir Putin going to Ukraine, obviously didn't deter him at all. Now he's going to meet with uh, uh, with uh, the leader of the, the prince of uh, Saudi Arabia. Mm-hmm. And they're going to meet today and or uh, over the next two days, they're going to meet with the nine heads of state. In India, he should blast India for buying Russian oil. And with uh, MBS, he should say, listen... This is my problem with you. You've got to stop murdering people that you disagree with. 
Uh, but I do appreciate some of your reforms, and this is how we can work together. Willie. Um, he's going to do some of that. Yeah. I mean, the fact is he's meeting with him. I mean, the fact is in, in the campaign, he said he was going to uh, make Saudi Arabia a pariah state. And he talked all about getting tough on Saudi Arabia after the murder of Khashoggi. Uh, but, you know, you know the, the Saudis sometimes say that uh, all politicians do that until they read until they get their first security briefing uh, and they find out that Saudi Arabia is a pretty important strategic partner. Uh, and then they soften up a little bit. And lo and behold, uh, Joe Biden is going over there. He's going to beg the Saudis to please produce more oil. Not sure they can or not, but he's going to beg them to do it. Um, and he's going to recognize, as is just a fact, that the United States has significant military assets and interest and strategic interests in Saudi Arabia. And they are, in fact, what Biden says they are, which is a strategic partner. So I think that that's going to overcome some of the moralizing uh, that's taken place after the murder of uh, Khashoggi. But he doesn't he, – he acts like a tough guy uh, in rhetoric and speeches. But face-to-face, yeah. on the phone, via Zoom, whatever it is, he's not that tough. And he never no. addresses the major issues. True. Uh, and, you, you know, the one thing you had with President Trump um, is that he was just very, very open. So he goes over to NATO and he says to Germany, don't do this pipeline. You'll be dependent on Russia for your heating, for your power, for your natural gas. Don't do it. Uh, and they do it, and now they're dependent on Russia and facing a, a possibility of a really bad, uh, bad winter coming up. So they're, they're, you know, it's, it's diplomacy is usually uh, thought of as being very gentle with your words, but a lot of times it's better to just come out and say it. Byron, lastly, I saw Gavin Newsom walk into the White House yesterday. We saw the video. He's guest me with the vice president. He obviously uh, appointed her as as senator, and she got her own six years. People are waving and people are speculating. He looks the part, but there's no one less worthy of being a leading contender to be president than Gavin Newsom. He destroyed a state. He destroyed San Francisco first and then helped lead California into an abyss. And yet he thinks he's a presidential candidate. Might he get it because he seems to look like central casting of a president? (laughs) So he's, he's the man who looks like the man for the job. Um, listen, uh, the, the, what Newsom is doing now, especially in his uh, efforts to try to attack Ron DeSantis, who he may view as his counterpart in the Republican race for 2024, what Newsom is doing now just shows you how delicate and possibly problematic the Democratic situation is for 2024. You have a president. It's increasingly seen that he is too old to be president right now, much less if he is serves until he is 86 years old, which we would do in the second term. So you've got a lot of Democrats who want a different um, nominee. They want to make Joe Biden a one-term president. But the natural successor if Biden were to not run again, the natural, obvious successor is the vice president of the United States, Kamala Harris, uh, who polls terribly, who has not impressed anybody, and who Democrats fear would lose. Uh, she is also the first woman vice president and the first vice president of color. So this is a hugely delicate situation for Democrats. I, I personally do not believe uh, that if Biden didn't 
did not run again. I, I don't think they could push Harris out of the nomination because she is the obvious right. successor. But you have people like Gavin Newsom, as well as some people in Congress, um, positioning themselves just in case. No kidding. Something's going on. No, no question. Uh, Byron, you, and by the way, I just I, I can't believe he'd even leave California for a day with all those problems. Instead, he's going to Montana, buying ads in Florida, visiting Washington, getting awards for stuff he doesn't deserve. I've never seen anything like it. But uh, I, I get exasperated easily, perhaps. He's hoping somebody will nobody will notice what has been happening in California. Maybe they just won't look. Okay, I doubt it. I'll read the Washington Examiner and find out the true story. Byron York, thanks so much. Thank you, Brian. You got it. Listen, when we come back, your turn, 1-866-408-7669. Or go to briankillme.com and just click on contacts and comments. Don't move. Learning something new every day on the Brian Kilmeade Show. The fastest three hours in radio. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Gas is going up, going up, but uh, people's paycheck ain't going up. The more, the more you get on your paycheck, the more you got to spend in the grocery store, gas station, wherever. But, but Joe Biden needs to do more. I'm not vegan yet. I'm working on that. But I am a vegetarian now because of the price of meat. Can no longer afford it. I have to limit my groceries a little now. So I can't really get what I want all the time, I guess. The bread went up. Like, you know, at one time you can get a good loaf of bread for like a dollar and fifty. Nowadays you're paying like four bucks, five. Milk went up, you know what I mean? It's very expensive to shop nowadays. I love seafood, but I, I, I just can't afford it. So I do my fillets and call it quits and suck my thumb and pretend. America, how people are responding. So I want to get by the numbers and get to the people. Uh, they say the Midwest is suffering inflation at a higher rate, and they now the producer price index has come out. The wholesale prices at 11.3% in June, a huge surge in energy costs is fueling that. So uh, excluding food, energy, and trade, uh, uh, everything is up 6.4%, the monthly gain of 0.3%. Jobless claims jumped to 244,000 last week, the highest level since 2021. Let's go to Alex, listen on WABC in Brooklyn. Hey, Alex. Hey, good morning, Brian. Thanks for taking the call. I disagree with what your last guest, um, Byron, said, that the Democrats can push Kamala Harris out of the 2024 race because she's a black woman and it would look racist. I think the Democrats care more about winning elections than looking racist because the whole reason why they're busy faking it, that they're pro the black people and they're against racism is because they want the black vote. And Kamala Harris did so poorly in the primary election in 2020 that I don't think they would even take a chance of having her even run in the would, would you say this though alex would you say they repl- they'd have to replace her or beat her with a with a minority in some way and whether it's stacy abrams would, if she's able to pull off a huge upset in georgia that would be it yeah i i think it would be stacy abrams or you know another black person or a woman it's a shame they, she should be the best yeah. person but it's just not the world we're living in right now, at least definitely not on the left. But good point. Uh, and, and thanks for listening to Byron York. He always makes excellent points. You don't have to agree all the time on this show. Robert Ford is next, ambassador to Syria for three years. You want to know what it's like in the Middle East for the president of the United States? He will tell us.
the talk show that's getting you talking. You're with Brian Kilmeade. I think the, a future diplomatic relationship between Saudi Arabia and Israel is coming. The Saudis really, really want to, to have, I believe, an important relationship with uh, Israel. Israel is a technological giant. They're a very developed, sophisticated country. They can be a real great partner to Saudi Arabia. And they have, of course, the common enemy of, of Iran. Uh, that was Joseph Westfall on CNN talking about Saudi Arabia as what they want out of this meeting with the president of the United States. They really fear uh, fear or worry about Iran, the Houthi rebels, uh, and Yemen, who have now taken over the government of Yemen. They wouldn't have happened without Iran. The president walks right in there and pretty much sided with Iran on all things. So in an effort to please be friends with me, sorry about the last guy, but I won't be like that last guy. So David Sanger of the New York Times laid it out perfect to see what is at stake for this trip. Because, remember, President candidate Biden said Saudi Arabia is a prior nation, and this and this uh, Trump administration let them get away with murder. Cut 39. The hard part for the president right now is he wants to tell his base that human rights are central to his foreign policy. They have been central, but this has been the great glaring exception because he needs to convince Americans he's bringing down gas prices, and that means he's getting more oil flowing. And the Saudis know they have him where they want him, which is that finally the United States needs Saudi Arabia for something big. And this may be Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince's way out of the uh, exile, a diplomatic exile he has been in since the killing of Jamal Khashoggi, the uh, the dissident. And we always have to ask ourselves, too, uh, if we back out of a relationship, if we decide that that country is not worth it, just know that China has no ethics. They don't care about human rights. Uh, They don't care about past track record or rivalries. Uh, They're in. And if not, Russia will fill that gap, too, uh, because they're desperate. Ambassador Robert Ford joins me now. He was ambassador to Syria from 2011 to 2014, currently a senior fellow at the Middle East Institute in Washington. Ambassador, I'm not sure how much you heard of David Sanger of the New York Times comments that he said on CNN but he says basically they have Joe Biden over a barrel. Would you say that's correct? The Saudi oil, of course, is really important uh, to world energy prices and, in the end, American gasoline prices. Uh, and our long-term interest in Saudi Arabia's providing oil to world energy markets goes back way before Joe Biden. This isn't new. Understood. But it was the first time in a long time someone got elected to office and said this is a pariah nation. Yeah. So um, President Biden sometimes uh, goes too far in his oral remarks. Um, He does that on both domestic issues sometimes, and he does it on foreign policy issues, too. Um, I think when he called the Saudi uh, ruling family um, uh, a a problem for the world and— called them a pariah. He was going um, well beyond what realpolitik and American national security interests required. Do they care? The Saudis? Sure they care. Of course they care. Um, They were very angry about it. Um, And that's one of the reasons they've looked to countries like Russia and China and built up relations with them in a way that was not true, say, 10 or 15 years ago. Of course they care. Ambassador, so um, we hear Macron caught on mic, go up to President Biden as they're walking at the G7 and say, hey, by the way, just called over to Saudi Arabia. They don't have any more oil to push. They don't have any more. They can't do much more. 
Is that really – is that – are we supposed to take that at face value? Do, did Macron have to whisper that to the president? Doesn't he have other ways to find that out? And do you think that's correct? So the Saudis have capacity to produce more oil, but the Saudis also have their own national interest. It's great for Saudi Arabia if uh, world energy prices, prices stay high. Um, a barrel of oil at 80 or $90 a barrel is great for Saudi Arabia for their budget. Um Second point I would make on this is the Saudis have a relationship with Russia now. I'm not saying that Russia has replaced the United States. It has not. But Russia and Saudi Arabia do share some economic interests, and the Saudis factor that into their national policy. So in a sense, because Saudi Arabia is stronger now, um, it will do things that it perceives are in Saudi national interest. They won't just automatically follow orders from the United States. In that sense, it's really a different world from, say, 1990. I would say so. Uh, absolutely. Although we did give them instant missile defense after they were rocketed by the Iranians. And I do think one way to win them over uh, would be to put the Houthi rebels back on, a, on, the, on that terror watch list and let everybody know that Iran is the bad guy in the region and we're pulling out of this uh, peace agreement from 2015, wouldn't you think? So the Saudis, of course, never liked the 2015 agreement. And I'm sure they're very happy that Biden said they're going to keep the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps on the terrorism list. I think it's also important for, for your listeners to remember that it's the problems with the Saudi Arabia uh, goes all the way back into the Trump administration. When Iran attacked uh, Saudi oil facilities in 2019, the Trump administration very carefully did not uh, respond militarily to that strike. Um, then the Americans later withdrew uh, surface-to-air missile defense systems. And the Americans need them in other places. The Saudi Arabia is not the only place in the world where our military is busy defending things. So one of the things that Biden no, is going to didn't they do put them in, in discussion? Didn't they put the I, missile defense? Finish, yeah, just didn't they put the missile defense system into Saudi Arabia? So um, yeah, he put them in, and then the Americans took them back out again. And one of the things that Biden has to do on this trip is to talk to the Saudis seriously about how much they can expect to get from the United States in terms of security, and how much the Saudis are going to have to work with other countries, including Israel. Um, to manage the Iran threat. That's the whole point of this trip to the Middle East, really, is to build up cooperation between Israel and other Arab states, notably Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, so that the Israelis help defend them against Iran and not just the United States. Iran is a regional problem in the Middle East, and it's not just an American problem. And so the Saudis and the Emiratis, uh, the Bahrainis and others, are going to have to start working with other countries in the region, notably Israel, um, for this defense against Iran. And I think that's a good initiative. It shouldn't always be the American taxpayers that have to defend the Gulf states. Well, absolutely. But I think they got that message with the Abraham Accords. I don't think they really needed a, a, for us to tell them to work to, with their neighbors against Iran, do they? I think the Americans have a role here. It's going to be easier for Gulf states, including Saudi Arabia, to work in a cooperative fashion with the Israelis, with the Americans deeply involved. I want you to just picture an operations room where you've got like Israeli 
military officers, Saudi Arabian military officers, Emirati military officers and others. Do you think they're going to work smoothly by themselves? There might, there might be a use sometimes for American generals, American senior officers who know them all very well already from our years of uh, regional defense work. Um, the Americans just sort of um, grease the wheels a little bit, if you will. Um, it's very hard for me to imagine a joint operations center without some kind of American presence there. Um, if for no other reason, the Israelis have no experience with regional military leadership. But the Americans from 1990 in the war against Saddam and Kuwait, and then mm -hmm. 2003, the Americans have a lot more experience no, than uh, that. Uh, the absolutely. Israelis don't have it. And, and so the Americans have a role to play. No, no kidding. And we've we've been in the region. Uh, but the Abraham Accords, the first time I heard the president even say those words were today, and say he's in support of the Abraham Accords. So having gone into the region, here's David Sanger on will the Saudis be the next country to join, officially join these accords of the New York Times. Cut 40. You won't see that on this trip, I suspect, but you will see steps in that direction. And this integrated air defense, which you probably will hear about during the uh, press conference, is a step in that direction, working with the Arab states against a common adversary, uh, Iran, to ward off their air attacks and their drones. So it may be a trip away from happening, but what puts it in jeopardy is trying to get back into that 2015 deal, wouldn't you say? I think that uh, you can follow both tracks for a little while, but it's pretty clear they're not going to get a, uh, a 2015 deal back again. I, the, the talks are going nowhere. And so uh, I think the Americans are already moving to accelerate Plan B, which is a sort of a military response, which has two aspects. One is deterring Iran from attacking. And then the second is um, more and more thinking about a military response. And if you noticed, Biden on this trip, for the first time, came out and said, well, as a last resort, we'll use military force. I have not heard the president say that before. I have not heard Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, say that before. I've not heard Tony Blinken, secretary of state, say that before. So the Americans were sort of slowly shifting um, step by step. And there's no reason to like rush this. Um, it's better to do it steadily and not make mistakes in the process. What is your take on Iran supplying uh, hundreds of drones and training Russians to use them in the Ukrainian war? So the Iranians, of course, need allies too. They're not the only ones that want allies. And especially as they look at an emerging uh, Israel, America, Gulf states, Saudi Emirates uh, alliance, the Iranians too are reaching out for allies, and the logical one is Russia. And so I don't know that these Iranian drones are going to make a huge difference on the battlefields of eastern Ukraine. We'll see. Um, but I think what we will see steadily is more and more cooperation between Iran and Russia. Um, whether that be in military fields like these drone sales, could be some business deals. Um, I would imagine Iranian-Russian relations over the next years will get stronger. Bring us behind the scenes if you can. We're talking to Ambassador Ford, who's uh, uh, the ambassador to Syria for three years, tumultuous uh, time to be there. Ambassador, bring us behind the scenes. Turkey is now brokering talks about getting grain out of Ukraine with Russia and the Ukrainians. What leverage do Turkey, the Turks have 
and how hopeful should people be? So it's interesting. The Turks actually have um, a pretty good relationship with Russia. Um, I think it's important for listeners to remember that historically, over the past hundreds of years, Turkey and Russia have been bitter enemies, and they fought many wars. Um, but right now, um, Turkey is a sort of economic outlet for Russia. The Turks have not applied sanctions against Russia the way the United States and Europe have done. Um, I was just in Turkey about a month ago and uh, uh, meeting a group of Russians there, actually, and they highlighted me, the Russians did, that Turkey is a sort of economic outlet for Russia right now. If you're a Russian and you want to fly anywhere in the world, you pretty much have to go to Istanbul, the big airport in Istanbul, to fly to any other place in the world. You can't go into Europe because the airports are all closed to Russian planes. So the Turks have some leverage with the Russians. And the Turks, I think, would like to see um, a diplomatic victory for them if they could broker a deal like this and get some grain ships out to the Mediterranean, to some of especially uh, African and Arab countries, uh, which are right. importers of food and are facing real food problems. So it would be a diplomatic achievement for Turkey. And that's, I think, what Erdogan is trying to do. But there are still many hurdles to overcome, not least of which are like mines in right. the Black Sea. And such so things. it's good to have relations with Russia to a degree. Like, for example, Macron still is in contact, and so is uh, 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 Schroeder of uh, Germany. But don't you believe that Turkey is pushing the edge of NATO relations by continuing to circumvent the sanctions, as well as India taking cheap oil, uh, depending to be uh, depending to be a friend of the West? Don't you think there's there's leverage that could be taken against both these countries to get them in line because they're extending this Russian-Ukrainian war? Well, let me talk about India first, because that's the easier one. So um, India is a friend to the United States, but India is its own big billion dollar, I'm sorry, billion person population. And the the Indian-American alliance, to the extent there is one, is aimed at China. So it's really important to think carefully about this. If you want to piss off the Indians um, because of Russia, what does that do with India's help against China? And we do need India's help against And they need China. ours. So, well, they do, but I think it's important here to not throw the baby out with the bathwater um, and not to just apply sanctions willy-nilly. I think it's much better to talk to the Indians about specific things they can do rather than threatening to bang them on the head with sanctions. Let's be honest about sanctions. Sanctions are a feel-good foreign policy measure. They have a very poor history of changing uh, uh, adversary capital's behavior in foreign policy. They didn't work with Saddam Hussein. They haven't worked with Bashar al-Assad. They haven't worked with the government in Venezuela, the Maduro government. I mean, let's be honest. They don't achieve very much, but they make us feel good. So before we go um, bashing on India with the possible repercussions of um, Indian help with China, um, I think we need to consider carefully. Right. Now, on Turkey, on Turkey, um, the Turks certainly could do more, um, and they could start applying sanctions. They are NATO members, after all. But uh, the Turks have their other problems with Russia, most notably in Syria, and the Turkish military and the Russian military have actually fought skirmishes in Syria. I think listeners should know that. 
Turks and Russians have fired at each other. The Russians killed 30 Turkish soldiers in an airstrike two years ago. So if we're going to start uh, insisting that NATO, that uh, Turkey as a NATO member do these things, are we willing to help Turkey fight Russians in Syria? That is a serious foreign policy question. Ambassador, so, yeah. Amb- and Ambassador, the Turks are asking us that question. Right. So Ambassador, we have to have an answer. Uh, your knowledge of the region is tremendous. Great. Uh, Ambassador Ford, thanks so much. My pleasure, Brian. You got it. one 408 7669 Back in a moment for to wrap up the hour. Don't move. Newsmakers and newsbreakers. Hear it first on the Brian Kilmeade Show. He's so busy, he'll make your head spin. It's Brian Kilmeade. I think it is an indication, however, that what we're looking at is uh, something of a new normal uh, in that uh, sharks are these uh, uh, tiger sharks are just a little bit closer to shore than they've been. They've always been here. Uh, They've always been out there. That is Steve Ballone, one of the great guys, Suffolk County uh, executive, great guy, great friend of the show. But I'm not really worried. I mean, the new normal with sharks? When I can pretend that every swimmer is going to be attacked by a shark. I mean, it's not like we can expect a hurricane every year. I mean, the new normal. And if you don't want to be attacked by a shark, don't go in the water, according to reports. Well, that's, but two things. These shark attacks were really like small cuts, right? They, these Tiger people shark. didn't die. They didn't lose limbs. It was like a four-inch gash, which yeah. isn't ideal, and it's very scary. Um, but the, my, do you swim in the ocean, or are you... Or are you afraid of sharks? Say that again. Do you swim in the ocean or do you not? No, no, I will swim in the ocean, but I'm very aware that I'm a visitor, that they live there. And when shark attacks, if shark attacks happened on land, then I would say that's the new normal. I would say that is is the new normal we have to get used to. But for sharks to attack in the water, I call that normal, normal, the old normal. You are so wise. The Will Cain Show is now dropping five episodes a week. Join Fox and Friends weekend host Will Cain as he tackles the latest headlines from his unique perspective, along with thought-provoking interviews with leading figures and live calls from viewers and listeners. Listen wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.